Welcome back to the Seeky Strength Podcast. We're back with Project Chavez, Chavez, aka Team Evil GSP. Um, Project, first of all, what coffee are you drinking today? Because we know you're a, a heavy coffee aficionado. I am, and um, it's um, extra good out of my coffee cup. But um, there's a, an American coffee roaster that's getting just a little bit too big to truly be the niche brand they once were. But brands, uh, Intelligentsia. They're originally out of Chicago, and um, absolutely positively the best off-the-shelf coffee you could buy um it's very very good uh this is their uh kind of reserve release uh to a washed ethiopian which is pretty exceptional nice we, we might have to uh, go for an order of that bag the um Gurf has turned into a serious coffee snob in the last four to five months I, maybe since no, the start of lockdown it's been a slow decline for the last eight years i'd say just slowly knew what's happening <laughs> Um, we were wondering the other day about Arabica. My uh, favorite coffee roaster in the world is not terribly far from you. Uh, they're in uh, their, their original little deal is in that famous little market in London under the bridge. Um, oh, Piccadilly Square. I, I don't. I can't uh, think of something. Borough Market is that? A- oh, it could be. I'm not sure. I'm not too au fait with. Anyway, there's um, a, a roaster in there, uh, Manmouth. Uh, fucking absolutely. I would. I would walk to, to the UK to get the coffee. That's fucking good. We were wondering recently about the difference between Robusta and uh, Arabica. Well, well comically, um, they're the only two genetic differences in coffee. They are actually two separate species of plant. Um, they All coffee originated. They used to say Arabia and hence the Arabica, but it actually looks now in modern times, it looks like uh, it was actually probably Yemen is where coffee originated but nonetheless, that corner of the world, and um, if you plant fields of coffee, you will find a very small percentage are an actual variant. It's a natural occurring genetic variant called Robusta, and the reason it's called that is because it is more robust. It is a bigger, more woody, larger tree, bears more fruit. Unfortunately, uh, the fruit is higher caffeine and lower quality coffee. Oh, so it doesn't taste um, as good. It, it, it does not, but it, it does have some interesting properties that are used. Um, probably some of the very best espresso you've had probably has a, a pinch of Robusta in it. One for caffeine content and two for oil content. It tends to give espresso that extra creaminess no. uh, because of the robust uh, amount of oils. And then there's another dirty trick that, um, and I hate to say that, I hate to throw them under the bus, but fuck them. Uh, Starbucks actually uses this uh, when they grow coffee they will actually grow a field of Arabica and a field of Robusta and they will actually graft the Arabica plants onto the Robusta root system to try and get larger crop yields per unit hectare that's very interesting so when people talk about blends are they specifically talking about Robusta versus Arabica blend or is that just different plants no no Coffee has something, and again, I hate to give them credit because they're schmucks, but across the way from you, there's those Frenchy people. Um, (laughs) French pretty much own the nomenclature when it comes to food, and the the word in play there is terroir. It's uh, French for of the earth or from the ground, and coffee is an excellent example of a, a food product that has terroir. You could take a coffee plant, clone it, literally, you know, make two of the exact same plant, plant one in Hawaii, plant one in Brazil, they will yield 
two entirely different cups of coffee simply because Brazil and Hawaii are two different places. That's amazing. Okay. Altitude, altitude, humidity, soil quality, hours of sunlight, all of those things ultimately manifest in what winds up in the cup. Um, there's a most varieties of coffee, and we're way off topic for drugs, but really quick, most varieties of coffee come down to what's called a typica brand, which is uh, Latin for typical, and the typical coffee was smuggled out of North Africa, they believe by the Dutch, in the late 1400s, and pretty much every commercial coffee on earth is a derivative of that original typica clipping. No way. So there's not a lot of genetic variety within coffee. Jesus. The difference is geography. That's mental. Roderick, is there any topic you're not extremely well-read on? Yes. It's funny. I stay to my lanes, and I sound really wicked smart because I talk about drugs and coffee and food. But if you get me outside of that, dude, I'm a fucking disaster. <laughs> I am we should probably do a whole episode on coffee sometime, but we have yeah, we got some, absolutely. Uh, we've got some couple of questions from our uh, our audiences, so I think we'll probably the most broad one at the moment is the uh, Rachenkov Act. What do you? What's the views on that? Will it affect you? Does it make a difference? You know that uh, is it Rachenkov? The act that the U.S. government signed into law last week or the week before. Yeah, basically making private agencies allow able to enforce federal law. It's absolutely ludicrous. Um, like so many laws, at least in the, in the America, in the United States, it, it's really going to come down to how and if it's even implemented. We have loads of laws on the book that just people, you know, for 40 years, marijuana has been illegal, but they give a fuck. So it, it really comes down to what is going to be the actual application and utilization of the law. So it, it's way too early to say, but in a general sense, it's a bad thing. Yeah, you know, be just more, more, more nonsensical, inane legislation against excellence. It's it's really ridiculous. Yeah, um, we we actually we got a question last week um, from like a fan of the podcast, and he was asking about. It seems to be very heavily linked to international sports or sports where a national team might be competing against a U.S. national team, and somebody asked about CrossFit. And the fact that CrossFit are now picking, like, it's the top person from every country or every region. Oh, yeah. um, and he's asking if he thinks CrossFit is going to get hit down on. I, I doubt a private organization that kind of looks after itself will get hit that hard. Well, in, you know, again, and I, I don't love to bring politics into, you know, chemistry and biology. But in, in a lot of ways, I think this is international politicism in an attempt to kind of democratize the monetary landscape of drug use. Um, by implementing a law such as that, the financially advantaged of the U.S. are a little more uh, legally culpable than the financially disadvantaged in wherever the fuck. So it, it's just like, you know, like the uh, the stupid climate accord act it's just punish the wealthy so that they can't they can't exploit their advantage um yeah. which doesn't work but whatever that actually probably leads on to another kind of question someone had was and what made you kind of you know basically you said you started when you were like 16 was it 
um yeah. first time so what made you go you know drugs are worth the the step forward like what made you go there was just something performance anti drugs is something going to do and like still continue well, to do this day i I've, I've talked about this pretty extensively and I, I don't i don't mind repeating myself but i just you know f- to be fair i've talked about this pretty extensively i was um in australia i did a, an entire uh, presentation an entire two-hour presentation basically on that topic and um comically the uh, local news was there and i i, I guess they kind of got their their story wrong and kind of i think they were under the impression that i was some sort of post competitive athlete that was like repentant and kind of anti drug and <laughs> of course fuck not and, and so you know live on television they asked me you know like you know if you had it all to do again what would you do different and my straight faced immediate knee jerk response was well knowing what i know now and being almost 50 years old I would have taken more drugs sooner. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what what made sixteen year old Project go fucking? Well, here here's the thing, and the story begins much earlier than that. In that, I, I was, and and I don't mean to be asked, and I don't mean to be self adulating, but I I was a bit of a child prodigy. I walked into a commercial gym for the first time, Christmas Day, nineteen eighty one. That in itself is a story, but for another time. And it was a real gym in that high-level Olympic lifters, high-level powerlifters. It was in the northeast of the United States, that coal belt, iron region, um, places that generated, you know, Ken Patera and John Cuck and stuff like that, like real fucking deal. And so Christmas Day, 1981, uh, first day in a commercial gym, I look around and the few people that are in there, they're, they're squatting, so I'm like, I'm squatting. I square up to the squat bar, for the first time ever, and there's a, an askew poster of Ken Patera, where most gyms would have a, a, a mirror. There's an askewed picture of Ken Patera in the, the bottom rack position with those stupid aviator glasses that he wore. Okay, the, the point is, one, that's a pretty hardcore picture to be stared down the first day you're squatting ever. And two, the poster was held to the wall by 23-gauge 3cc syringes instead of thumbtacks. What the fuck? Okay. So there was no hedge. There was no, you know, tiptoeing. Like I walked into a gym and they're like, these are weights. Those are drugs. You're ready for these. You're not ready for those. Get the fucking work. Yeah. That's how it was. And if you do enough work with these weights, maybe we'll let you have these drugs. Now, now go to it. And that was literally how it worked. And so simultaneously, this was the environment I was in. I was also at school, you know, and they're doing the, the douchebaggery, you know, oh, steroids don't work. They don't help your sports performance and they'll make you bald and uh, sterile and you, you, you won't be able to get an erection. And then, you know, and then literally the school bus, I'm not even fucking making this up. The fucking school bus would drop me off in front of the gym and I would open the door and it would get these just gnarly fucking just ruthless human beings with just covered in fucking hair just fucking just feet red erections chasing women around in between sets just fucking eating meat and i'm like fucking somebody is fucking lying to me <laughs> Who is it? you know and it wasn't like they were all like like teenagers i'm talking like 50 60 year old men just 50 60 year old men with fucking like 600 pound front squats while sporting a beat red erection and eating a cheeseburger and i'm just like ah yeah. I, I, you know, like I see a fork in the road. I think I'm going this way. I yeah, think this yeah, is the yeah. road I'm going. Yeah. 
Yeah, that so makes sense. I didn't get the I didn't get the kind of gentle euphemistic, you know, introduction to drugs. I got the full on here we are. This is how it happens. If if you survive, you can maybe join the club. Yeah. And that also is and probably a, a topic for a different conversation, but that was literally the difference between then and now. It wasn't this, you know, save up your money, buy some Bitcoin, get on the internet, and have steroids delivered to your house. That was not the world back then. It was very much a guarded kind of um, gatekeeper kind of scenario that you literally had to almost mentor your way into. You just couldn't get drugs. You had to really, really represent yourself in such a way that it was it was almost gifted to you. It was almost bestowed upon you, not just, oh, I want drugs. It was yeah. a much, much different world. So do you think the barrier for entry right now is is a lot lower than it should be, or is it just a fact oh, of the matter? It's, yeah, it's, it's low to the point of absurdity. I mean, you know, buying drugs is like buying shit on Amazon.com. You just, you know, you know yeah, I, don't, I don't wink very well, but like, wink, wink. Like, you just <laughs> you know, go to Alibaba and type in the name of the thing you want, find the cheapest vendor send them some bitcoins and then stand at your mailbox it's fucking that easy it didn't used to be that easy yeah yeah that's what kind of problems would you see in vision from that is it more of a just kind of you shouldn't take that drugs that early because you're not going to learn how to train or do you think there's a concern for people's health and kind of you know well-being from using drugs from like within six months of starting the gym or do you think you know, it's just I, I don't i don't actually see it as any of that um although obviously you learn to train in absence of drugs, you, you do learn more how to train. However, the reality is the training in a natural environment versus training on drugs is sufficiently different that that actually doesn't have the value people think it does. The, the value in that gatekeeper arrangement is the weeding out process. Only the well and truly fucking committed will train like an asshole and get ruthlessly sore and not be able to sit on the fucking shitter and just you know, just the, that that level of fuck mm. for a year or two years or five years. Ninety percent of the assholes that run out and buy a you know a satchel of Dianabol to to look good at the beach. Ninety percent of those assholes would just weed themselves out. And just would not make it. And so the drug using population would be much smaller, much more committed, and it would be a much smaller fucking deal like it used to be. Yeah, I think definitely in the last 10 years or so, um, the amount of people who are like barely training or the amount of people who like you might know for a fact have only started training maybe a year or two ago. And then suddenly you hear that this person is using whatever or like even worse, they're after ordering SARMs of some sort that they have no real concept of what's happening with them. Uh, like SARMs are something that we take the piss out of a lot. And like particularly Garf takes the piss out of them a lot. And so people kind of ask us questions about them thinking in some way we were trying to like promote them or open people up to them. But no. I know when you were on the last time you talked about some of the dangers of SARMs, but maybe just like to talk about that briefly, just the kind of differences there. Well, there's a huge amount of differences, and some of the differences aren't even so much in a safety sense as in a, a misrepresentation of the actual effects. Let's see, where do I want to start that conversation? For, let, let's start with what a SARM is in a, in a very general metaphorical kind of sense. Um, 
people will use this very childlike mental image of lock and key or drug and receptor. Drug is like a key and it floats around and it eventually bumbles into a lock. And because it's the right key, it can unlock that lock and you get, you know, rainbows, unicorns, and bigger squats. Okay, so lock and key, fine. Not a very good analogy, really, but for the sake of this childlike logic train, we can use it. All steroids, anabolic steroids, are patterned after the root androgen testosterone. And so it's kind of like when you go to the hardware store to get a key made, they have to find the template that most represents that key, then they cut the notches into it. So it's a master key and then the details to make it fit specifically. All testosterone-based drugs are strangely based after testosterone, that same master key. SARMs come along and they're literally a skeleton key. They are not a steroid. They are not a sex hormone. They are not even patterned after the root testosterone. They just happen to be an amalgam of twisted fucking wire that happens to go into that lock and turn it. So it's a skeleton key. Because of that, they skip over an awful lot of what in the steroid world is kind of secondary effects. So in many cases, SARMs do build muscle and do, quote, work. And the very fact that they don't cause maybe certain aspects of masculinization are good for medicine because we don't want women and children and elderly. You know, you don't need, a, you know, 70-year-old people fucking humping like rabbits and you know, shaving three times a day. And that, that's not really re requisite to the concept. However, even though those are side effects, those actually manifest as positive effects in sport. So you've got a drug that by its very design is literally inadequate to the test. Yeah, yeah. I, I, in a best case scenario, even taking out side effects, unintended side effects, you know, androgen dis disruption and downregulation, all of which do actually happen. But if you just compare them on a note for note basis, the sheer refined nature makes it inadequate to the fucking task it's being applied to. Do you think it's something to do with the nature that a lot of these arms seem to come in droppers and oral forms? You know, no. so as in, no. I mean, people love to people love to blame the yeah. the, the the source. You know, that's oh, it's a it's a Chinese underground this or that or no. That that's that's absolutely super not the case. The case is the product is what the product is. Sorry. That chemical structure behaves that way. Yeah. It's just that people lack the understanding of chemistry, biology, you know, quantum mechanics, whatever the fuck. They just don't understand what they're fucking buying. But he's in from like a barrier for entry. So from what I've seen of people, they're like, oh, it's a dropper. So it's, you know, it's, it's almost like a supplement. Yeah, it's it's not like, you know, hardcore yeah, that, heroin that's really steroids. Stupid, that's a really stupid argument because, you you know, you could buy heroin in that same format. Would, yeah. it, be, would, it, would it somehow be wholesome? Like it's, that's a really dumbass argument. We know people who won't yeah. do steroids but have and do do SARMs. And I, I, I'm not sure what the disconnect is. I'm almost certain it's something to do with non-injectable i think it's something like that you know i think the way they're marketed here and, and as well and that's something i'm not comfortable or qualified to weigh in on like why people are stupid <laughs> is so outside of my ability to weigh in on I, all i can tell you is 
the science. Yeah. They are drugs. They work this way, and they don't work nearly as well as people want to believe they do. That That's pretty much the beginning, middle, and end of my song and fucking dance. Yeah. They're, they're more prolific with people we know take more SARMs than we know who people who take would take traditional steroids, you know, steroid-based, testosterone-based yeah. molecules. I certainly believe you, and, and I suspect the momentary non-illegality mm. yeah. uh, is probably some aspect of that, both in U- Europe and the U.S., but it doesn't change the fact that there's still drugs yeah. and there's still a relatively poor choice for the job. Um, they're hyper-detectable. They're, they're actually more detectable in, in drug testing than the, than the actual steroids that they're replacing. There's really just no positive benefit other than access and legality. And really, if you're going to fucking cheat at sports, is that the thing you're going to fucking use as your pivot? Like, it's really, it's really goofy. That actually raises a good point. So you see a lot of CrossFitters test positive for SARMs. Is that just a lack of knowledge thing? Or is there a particular aspect of SARMs that might maybe work for CrossFit? Well, it's a lack of knowledge in that they believe somehow they're not going to be detected, you know, as such. And they're kind of right. But the point is, they are a very detectable, robust, um, unique chemical signature that is very easy to detect should you look for it. Um, in the case of any anabolic steroid, there is an infinitesimal amount of that metabolite that exists in people in nature. It's actually how almost all steroids were discovered. They weren't actually created. They were discovered. If you dive deep enough into human metabolism, you will find a very infinitely small amount of you know, drove standalone or some, some derivative that they can then take, reproduce in mass, and make an anabolic steroid. Um, SARMs are literally 100% wholesale artificial. They don't exist in nature. So if there is one fucking molecule in your body, you put it there, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Easier to detect. So we've another question, okay? So it is basically, they're, uh, they're basically wondering, right, so if you had lifter A and lifter B, both of these started lifters when they were 11 or 12, um, one of those, you know, was in a systemic kind of doping environment from 11 or 12 they started doping pretty early the other lifter didn't start till maybe early 20s say 20 years old they're kind of wondering would the absolute difference in performance would they be level would the younger lifter almost certainly end up with more results or is it a matter of knowledge application training all that or does that earlier performance effect from the doping have a bigger long-term effect all of those things matter all you know all you know training acumen psychology environment you know but if we could make the argument say all things are equal, they came up through the exact same program, you know, the same training hall, the same environment, and the only difference was drugs. Hell, we can make them identical twins. You know, that's the we can take two identical twins, rear them through exactly the same program, but one gets doped, one does not. That's the difference. The difference would be the doped one would be an infinitely better athlete for an infinitely longer period of time. Even if, even compared to the athlete who started in twenties, Sophie, at the one hundred percent, particularly better than that. This this kind of goofy idea that you know you should save up and get as big as you can naturally before you start taking drugs is fucking wrongity wrong wrong. Um, anyone like I, again, I'm gonna like, go all crazy and use like logic and shit. <laughs> Has anyone stumbled across the concept of muscle memory? That, that a thing anyone's had a podcast on in the last hundred years? Is that a fucking thing? All right. What is muscle memory? 
Muscle memory is myonuclear donation, myonuclear number. It's infrastructure. You grow to a point where you have this level of infrastructure density. Okay. Grow was the key word in that sentence. You grow it. So if you are taking drugs that make you grow, uh, same word, one-to-one correlation, grow faster, guess what you grow faster? The fucking infrastructure. You are literally creating permanent muscle memory earlier for a longer period of time. Who has the advantage? There it is. Yeah. God damn it. it. Not only does it make sense, but the fact that everyone didn't collectively understand that kind of innately literally just pisses me off. <laughs> I, I suppose that's probably coming from somewhere where people are overemphasizing the power of, you know, performance enhancing drugs. Like, vastly beyond what they're capable of doing i suppose you know you're you're making the assumption that in your early 20s if you take them that they will make up for lost time essentially well they probably will but that's not i mean they will they will accelerate things to a to a rapid degree but it, it, that's the different than talking about things in the absolute mm. you know in my opinion what that is and, and and it may just be my own just general kind of loathing and hatred but i think it's people that overvalue naturalness they have this deluded belief that their uh, ultimate natural potential is orders of magnitude higher than it actually is yeah they're they're striving for some absolutely fictitious ideal and then they kind of just one day break down and resort to drugs yeah i i I go through this all the time but you guys are you know of the world what does the average minus maybe the first 18 months what does the average natural strength athlete gain per year? Oh, Jesus. Kilogram, maybe two? Oh, not of, of actual muscle mass. Yeah. Oh, God. They virtually never change. That's true. Okay, much. so let, let's be generous. Yeah. Let's yeah. be generous and say a kilogram a year. Yeah, yeah. Okay? That's unbelievable. And they train from 15 to 25. Yeah. Okay? So they maybe can accrue 20 kilograms of muscle. Yeah. In, 20, in, in 10 years. That's un- that would be unbelievable in, in reality, just case. You can, get, you can gain that in 10 weeks with drugs. <laughs> so, so, so I'm, I'm just not sure what, what is the argument? What is the conversation? Yeah. Like, I, it, 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 I don't care how anyone conducts their business, but just don't have your rational, deluded, you know, this idea that, you know, Oh, well, you know, uh, the, the best natural bodybuilders in the world are only a little bit smaller than, uh, or, or this stupid, you know, oh, drugs only matter 10%. You know, all the best strength athletes in the world, they would be 90% that strong without drugs. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. There would be somebody doing a 450-pound snatch without drugs? Fuck no. That, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, yeah. When you put it like that. that. Really? Yeah. Really? Despite the fact that that's never happened until very fucking modern times with drugs? Really? Yeah. But the difference is only 10%. Somebody's fucking failing math. <laughs> Somebody somewhere just doesn't do arithmetic anymore. Roderick, a question we got uh, was about the like just how prolific performance enhancing drugs are in Olympic sports in particular. And it's something that we when we're talking to people all the time, like kind of have to constantly reiterate that just how prolific they are. Uh, 
if you yeah if you could just speak on that for a minute or two they were like what's your go-to example of like you're like this is obviously you know this is the easiest way to explain well, it there's a little bit of a problem here and, I, and I'm, I'm comfortable saying this out loud there is a perspective problem here because i am the drug guy so the odds of me talking to another drug guy is very very high and the odds of me talking to a non-drug guy is very very low so on a professional level I see drug people all day long. So it's very easy for me to just go, drug use is 100%, because 100% of my day is dealt with drug use. And But that kind of obvious industry skewing aside, drug use is 100% in high-level sports. It just is. Anyone who doesn't think it is is just kind of foolish. You, the examples are never mind the fact that I can say, Oh, I worked with this athlete, that athlete, the other athlete. That's not even the point. The point is from a logical, observable point of view, it has to be 100%. If you track pre drug use to drug use records, let's just take Olympic lifting as the example. The records in the late 70s, and then in the early 80s, when testing became a thing. Very simple delination. You should be able to go, well, if drugs work and these guys were taking drugs and then you remove drugs, well, no one should be that strong. It should be that magical 10% reduction we all we all get to hear about. Drugs matter 10%. So at the implementation of drug use or drug detection, all records should have diminished 10%. That's the logic. Did that happen? No. What gives? It means either drugs never worked or drugs were never involved in sports or drug testing never happened. That was the only option. (laughs) (laughs) That's I think another thing that baffles people is they'll they'll pick a sport like they'll pick a sport like soccer where there's a huge amount of money involved and they'll say, oh, there's only a handful of physical specimens. So they'll say Cristiano Ronaldo would be an example of somebody who's an unbelievable physical specimen and they'd say he might be on drugs but nobody else is on drugs because they don't look like they are. Are there other examples of obscure sports like that that are... Well, you know, Lance Armstrong, you know, finally after the fact, you know, confessed to all of these assorted drugs that he used. Did he look... Well, I mean, outside of being a fucking blur as he went by you on a bicycle up the side of a fucking mountain... I mean, that aside, did he look like he was on drugs? No, he looked like an emaciated fucking waif. But so the, what, what is the, like, the, the like uh, entering people into an involuntary physique contest is a very goofy <laughs> way to measure drug use. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, you know, did, did Aki Bono look like he was taking drugs? I mean, like, just come on. Like, that's just, just a stupid, stupid fucking argument. Uh, next. Like, seriously, that's like a that's like child making correlations that don't exist. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, he's really tall. He must have a nice car. Like, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? <laughs> <laughs> next question we have is: How frequently are new peds developed? Developed, and do you think do you think testing will ever catch up with this? Or you know, I think they kind of mean peds is in just specifically performance enhancing drugs so not like incidental you know uses like actual performance enhancing drugs well, for the purpose here's a, here's the funny thing with that you you're the question you're asking just honestly isn't a good question and i'm i'm super not busting your balls but it's it's a question kind of rooted in the absolute ignorance of 
pharmacology and the world at large. Yeah, I think I'll the person actually did say, he, like, he didn't know anything about pets. He said he knew nothing about pets right, whatsoever. Right. I, I, again, like I said, I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying this in a besmirchive way. I'm just saying that the question proves the utter lack of understanding you know, behind it. An awful lot of modern PED use is application based. Drugs that are developed for cancer, for you know, bone density, osteoporosis, all these other things. There's people like me scouring through the extracts, looking to see if that might have some off-label application that we can get sport-like effects out of it. So there's an awful lot of pharmacology being developed that's literally new that's just going to be used inappropriately for sports purposes. So that's a huge part. Then the 180-degree aspect is also reality. Um, anybody remember the name Balco Bay area, Bay area lab company, Victor Conti, yeah. all that. Yep. All right. I will sh share with you the absolute, um, the absolute brilliance and simultaneous, um, di not dishonesty, but, um, sham, if you will, that was Balco. In real pharmacology and actual pharmaceutical research, <clears throat> there's something everyone's heard of a patent. You know, you, you get a patent on a product, you own it. Well, that's a horrific generalization. There's many, many levels to patents. Many of them amount to little more than um, a lease. You, you identify a thing and you get something called a re conditional research patent. And what it is is... You, you've identified this thing and you say, I, I want exclusive rights to be able to look at this unencumbered by others. And then in two years, five years, whatever, I'll either patent it or relinquish that conditional research patent. And then others can you do what they wish with it. Okay. Because of this, there are legal documents identifying all of these conditional research patents. So if you were well-financed and well-knowledged and had a fleet of good lawyers on your staff, you could get the lawyers to go through history and find conditional research patents proximal to modern drugs. So you could go, all right, find me the people that created Dianabol and then tell me like the five conditional research patents before Dianabol. You could look them up. The chemical structures blatantly expressed and then you could create drugs that by definition are inferior because they were earlier generations. They were prototypes, but they're not legitimate market food pharmaceuticals. And therefore, drug testors would not be testing for them because they're not actually fucking drugs. Genius. No? Yeah. It's so intelligent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the clear, the, the magic sauce. Well, they... The, the, the clear was literally just one iteration of many uh, d derivative compounds, or actually they weren't really derivative. They were kind of pre-derivative compounds of modern drugs. But yeah, they, they had a pantheon of proto-anabolic steroids that were just basically handed to them by the legal system. And Broderick, is there, so everyone's heard about designer steroids now, um, right. or they'll hear them in certain contexts. Is there still labs uh designing these kind of designer compounds 
Well, again, you have to be very clear about what you're saying when you say designing. Yes. Are there people with wax pencils, you know, turn up on you know glass boards trying to better modern steroids? The answer to that's yes, but boy, is that a niche fucking group that's taking place in you know one laboratory in Russia, one laboratory in China, and you know one in Argentina and one in uh, Jamaica. Like that's a very very niche market. Yeah. However, are there people that have the ability to um, create steroids? You know, actually take by commercial market cholesterol and derive it down into said compound. Are there people doing that? Yes. Now, could those people find a quirky recipe via maybe the method I just outlined by Valco and make a designer? It's not really designer because they didn't fucking design it, but can they make a niche drug that's currently unknown? Yes. Okay. So we got a question, Broderick, about uh sports that have a huge amount of different dimensions in them uh so i crossfit. think uh, yeah crossfit. crossfit and the guy is the guy was a crossfitter uh so they're asking about those sports and they're asking about the yeah. difference like what the what that kind of those protocols look like well it, there's a lot of there's a lot of you know unfortunately a lot of layers to that question but in a perfect world it would be more of a periodization concept where, okay, the contest is on X day. 200 days before that, we're going to focus on absolute strength. We would dope very specifically to that trait. Then we would transition into more of a work volume, uh, work capacity type situation. Then we would dope according to that. The strength would diminish from its absolute, but it would never diminish to a level that it lower than it would have been had you not doped it in the first place. Yeah. That, that, that's a perfect world scenario. Is that often the way it's done? No. A lot of times people just throw wholesale drugs at it. And if I just take enough of enough kinds, I'll get all the characteristics all at once. That's, that's also a strategy, but it's not nearly as good or elegant or sustainable. Yeah. Somebody's wondering about what kind of red blood cell ranges would you find acceptable for athletes? So I think they're wondering about the relationship being not dying, but still getting a lot of performance. Once again, it's just a, bad, uh, just a bad question. I mean, we can all look at blood work and see the medical reference range, you know, an RBC of X or a hematocrit of X, a hemoglobin of, you know, above 17 is danger, 18 is kind of danger, danger. However, those ranges are set in place for gen pop, and they're very accurate and appropriate for gen pop. But again, going back to the example of Lance Armstrong, you know, if you're riding up the side of a mountain on a bicycle in thin atmosphere, a hemoglobin of 18 is barely adequate. Yes. You know, a, a hematocrit of 60 is kind of where you want to be, as inappropriate as it would be for the couch potato, you know, w watching, you know, soap operas. So it, 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 and then, you know, I'm taking the two ridiculous extremes, but in the middle of that pantheon would then be, you know, bodybuilders, powerlifters, Olympic lifters, they would all have their own niche and kind of threshold. The basic answer to that is the higher the aerobic requirements of the sport and therefore the higher, the greater, uh, the greater the aerobic workload per unit time, the higher you want and can tolerate those phlebotic values. You know, if you're a powerlifter that likes to be a sloth-like, you want to keep those values very low. 
you know, therapeutic range at best. The other side of the coin, if you're a CrossFitter, you can probably push them up to the top of the reference range. If you're an ultra marathon runner, you better be out of the reference range or you're out of the game. Is there, how does, I suppose, I have kind of a question in regards to that. So, you know, this like kind of, that's obviously getting into the realms where red blood cells, a lot, syrupy blood, maple syrup blood's probably not great for long-term health. Agreed. So you obviously interact with a lot of high-level athletes and people who are borderline psychotic. Yep. Do, do you ever like question, you know, when they want to push that to the limits or are you ever like, do you, have you ever met someone where you're like, you're, you just, you're, you're psychotic. Are you like, this makes sense. He just wants to get better. Um, I mean, every, everything's a risk reward ratio. And, you know, I personally, as a person and as a coach do have limits, they're very high, but I do have limits and I have consulted with athletes where my honest opinion was that's just not a good idea regardless of the performance benefit you really shouldn't do that um and we you know, reasonably amicably part ways i have been party to people's drug use that i just personally didn't feel comfortable with comically it's almost never bodybuilders powerlifters it's almost always either strongmen or endurance athletes oh really I could see strongmen, but not not endurance athletes. I have I have had you know endurance athletes come to me looking for additional advantages, and they have a hemoglobin of nineteen and an you know a, a hematocrit of sixty two. Oh dear! And they're and they're oh they're God. seeking more advantage. Fucking hell! Do you what the running so that person who had sixty two? So like for reference, it's usually about forty, kind of forty five is like reasonably healthy. Fifty is pretty sexy. I mean, yeah. if you're at fifty, like you, you know, you're you're pretty pretty robust. So is that <laughs> running? So this endurance? So like they're doing a lot of endurance. Is that is that basically eliminating enough, eliminating enough red blood cells or is that still just incredibly dangerous like just him being alive um, well i mean the, it's a, again it's a, it's a, 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 a you know the the analogy we always use is you know it's playing tug of war a, across the grand canyon um you you are very close to a very sharp drop off called death um it's a situation where if you don't keep their rbc and hemoglobin that high you'll overtrain and be unable to sustain the sport. But in the same breath, if you don't overtrain and sustain the sport, the RBC values will overwhelm you and you'll die of a stroke. So it's a constant chemical tug of war between what you're doing pharmacologically and what you're doing environmentally to prevent death. Those blood values are just making my palms start to sweat. Oh Someone else is wondering, what's the doping control like in major sports like NFL, NBA, so American national sports, uh, MLB, and in particular, they're wondering about the NCA. So I assume that's uh, National is it Athletics Association. They're, they said as a former collegiate track athlete, I was always kind of suspicious of some performance people put up. Well, uh, you know, again, I don't, I don't like to just blatantly throw people under the bus, but I've said this story publicly so many times, it should be pretty public knowledge. I went to the University of Arizona. I got most of my fundamental knowledge and application of drug use while I was at the University of Arizona. What 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 does that mean? That means college athletes were using lots of fucking drugs. 
<laughs> that's what that means. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to put that in more pedantic language. You know, you you, you don't learn Russia Russian in China. You learn Chinese in China. Like I, I learned drums in college. Like what the fuck more do you want to hear? <laughs> yeah. What like one thing? A question one of the members put up in the page earlier. Um. And it's something I don't think we've ever spoken about, but is the question it's, there about the natural testosterone? So if doing things to naturally increase testosterone levels, is it worth it? Like cold water exposure, etc. I assume they mean things like horny goby, stuff like that. Uh, some person, a CrossFitter, Sam Dancer, posted a list of things he was doing to naturally increase testosterone levels. And there was a lot on there. Well, again, I mean, it's, it's not for me to say what is and isn't worth it. Like, I, I, I'm not the arbiter of value in the cosmos. That's that's goofy that's a, a goofy thought. Um, the the thing you need is a dose of reality. That that's all. Just a dose of reality and understand the scales in which you're dealing with. Normal, natural human testosterone exists somewhere south of 100 milligrams per week of production. Most people exist in a 70 to 100 milligram per week range. Not coincidental. That's about what medical TRT is. Coincident? Probably not. Kind of like they looked at one and created the other. Okay. So now the question is, what is the variance? How much can you increase it? Let's go crazy and say you could raise it 50%, which by the way, you cannot. But let's say that means you're going from 100 milligrams a week to 150 milligrams a week. Yeah. Where most athletes are starting at 500 milligrams a week. So it, it, is it worth it? I don't know your risk reward scale, but just know that adding 10, 20, 30% to a hundred is a pretty small fucking number compared to the numbers the rest of the advanced world is operating at. That actually leads on to another question one someone had was basically they're wondering at older ages and old for weightlifting would be, you know, mid thirties considered. Is TRT is it worth it? Like, will that perform? So, actual TRT, so not like sports TRT or, you know, like TRT, I think actual, you know, medical TRT, would it be something that would benefit them from the sports? And obviously, there's some, like, you know, risk rewards for them for there. But, well, I, again, I, I don't understand those sorts of questions. And, and I, again, I don't mean to be mm-hmm. overly combative, but I, I literally just don't understand those questions. Is somebody legitimately asking, do drugs work? Because if that's the case, they're too dumb to breathe. Drugs work, okay? So, so now are they asking, is that a good risk-reward ratio? Why ask me? I don't give a fuck. I don't like this person. I don't care if they die yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. So what What the fuck are they asking? I think what they're kind of wondering is, you know, if they did actual TRT, would they see a significant increase in their performance or would they be able to train yeah. for a lot longer or would it be much yeah. different from being natural? No. If you, you look at, you know, that 70 to 100 milligrams is height of life. That's, you know, yeah. 18 to 25. If they're beyond that, the number's declining. So if they re-elevate the number, will they see re-elevation in their work capacities and responses yes absolutely drugs work there's zero argument about that among the uh, civilized world another question we had project uh was more about kind of the prevalence of doping in weightlifting in the western countries so obviously all of the kind of eastern countries uh eastern bloc countries have a very bad name and everyone seems to think that the uk American. the u.s mainland europe is in some way holy with their doping and and never ever dope in weightlifting particularly in weightlifting yeah 
No, the difference is totalitarian versus non-totalitarian. Really, it's, it's, a, it's a social issue. In those countries, because there is not a free market and individuals do not have their own money and their own choices, they are part of government programs. And it's very hard to keep hush a large, unwieldy government-organized program. Whereas in the Western world, it's hodgepodge, hit or miss. It's what's the person's particular predilections, their intelligence, their finances, their willingness to spend finances, their willingness to hire somebody like me or not. Or, so it's, it's very spotty. So there's no unified thing to blame. So if someone fails, they could just go, well, he was an asshole. Whereas in Asia, if someone fails, you could say the whole country's an asshole. <laughs> it's purely a social issue. The same argument that used to be made about, you know, the 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 amateur you know, hockey team of, of the Soviet Union was really professional. It's the same argument in reverse. Yes. So we have another question. Just some suggestions for good books talking about PDs or the related topic. Something you'd, you'd like go to, maybe like top three books you'd recommend. Um, yeah, I'll happily do that here and I'll do that in a second, but just to know, and I'm, I'm really not one for shilling my stuff, but, uh, on my Instagram page, team evil GSP, uh, there's those little icons where you can store shit. I don't know what it's called. Um, when you like preserve a story and it's yeah. there. Oh yeah. Those little, yeah. One of those is titled research. And if you click on that, you can actually scroll through snapshots of my own personal library. So any and all of those books are absolutely worth reading. Now, the, the top three, if I had to say, comically, it's literally on my desk right in front of me, Bill Llewellyn's Anabolics. I personally prefer the 2005 hardback edition, but they're all roughly the same. Um, it's very much an encyclopedic, uh, encyclopedic type situation, drug name, basic structure, basic behavior. Um, not a wizardry in terms of application, but very useful. And this does this, this does this. So I would say probably anyone who is even remotely interesting, interested in having an opinion on a topic should own that. Um, what would I say next? Um, probably every single person should read Charlie Francis's Speed Trap and Faust Gold. I would say those three books would put you on a path of vague understanding. I have a bit of a, a tangent there from that. Is uh, so you're like Fitz mentioned at the start, right? You're very, very well read on some topics. Do you have a process you go about educating yourself? So like when you decide to look at a topic, you know, you're whatever it be something very, very niche or something very, very broad. Do you have a process by which you go about learning these things? So you're, you know, how do you, or is it just read as much as you can, or is there like a distinct kind of like, you know, path you go through? You know, it's it's really strange you say that. Um, I, when the, when the apocalypse, the as I referred to it at the time, the bro-pocalypse hit and uh, knocked everyone out of the gyms and kind of caused the grand confusion, um, I strangely was the sole possessor of the social awkward solution to everyone's problems. I'm basically a very ineffective person. Mm-hmm. I look really, really clever on these podcasts because it's my niche. But outside of my niche, I'm a disaster. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a poor driver. I can't navigate. I, I have no human interaction. Um, just to give you an example, and I'm coming to a point, trust me. I'm the person that got thrown out of the local Starbucks after they discovered 
quite to my dismay that I wasn't hearing impaired. I have such bad social interactions that I actually conned the staff at the local Starbucks that I was deaf just so I didn't have to fucking talk to them. Oh, God. That sounds like some of our, that sounds like some of our friends. That sounds like one of our friends in particular. So I'm just, I'm just trying to give you an idea of how ineffective I am. And be, the, the point I'm coming to is because of this, I don't leave my house. I literally only leave my home to train, occasionally buy some groceries. We live in this wonderful world. We mentioned earlier about the, you know, the Alibaba. The UPS man brings me food, coffee, steroids, growth hormone. I don't have to go anywhere. So I, can, I have these live at home, train at home, work at home, educate at home skills that were almost a deficit previous to the apocalypse. So my point is during the apocalypse, everybody came to me with like, how do you do this? And how do you like keep your daily schedule? And I had some little tips and things that I learned over the years of being a hermit that make that process good. Um, not, not that we need to cover them now, but just know that it's interesting, but my weird skill set suddenly bubbled up. And because of that, it came to my attention that maybe I should make a video or a tutorial on some of how I do research this stuff. And I have a vague process and it, it all revolves around little notebooks and the little notebooks move systematically to larger notebooks. And what I'll do is I'll identify the problem, you know, whatever it is. Oh, it's something to do with uh, phlebotomy. We get at an RBC of, you know, at a hematocrit of 60, we start having this problem with cardiac back pressure. Okay. I've identified the problem. So then I get out my notes from college and I look at cardiac structure and I start making little notes just randomly. And I make page after page of little notes. I'll make a note that says, look up something on the YouTube or internet or something. And I, then I take this and I move to a bigger notebook and I organize this into something coherent. Then I take that notebook and I move to a full-size sheet of paper and create a more and more. So it's basically like going from rough notes to outline to finished document. Oh, I like that. And it's that systematic structure of size. As the page gets bigger, the details get more poignant. Yeah. As the pages get smaller, the details are more general. And there's also that repetition of moving the material from here to here. I, I then even get greater absorption because of repetition plus the refinement of greater surface area to put notes on. Do you find yourself gnawing on subjects, you know, when you're kind of absent in your brain or do you feel like you really have to, if you're particularly stuck on a particular subject, do you find you have to really concentrate on it or do you feel it takes a certain period of time, you know, when you're taking a shit or a shower and you're kind of like, you um, know, when you're chewing over something? Well, actually my thinking time is when everybody else is sleeping. Uh, again, if you, uh, anyone who knows me probably knows this pretty well. I am a horrific insomniac. Um, I, I sleep two hours a night, give or take, and usually not well. So while the rest of you are enjoying whatever the fuck it is you're enjoying, I'm pacing and cursing and pacing and cursing. And I usually do stumble upon the answers during that cursing pacing window. You really are an evil genius, Broderick. <laughs> There's oftentimes I wish I wasn't, but I think that that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to ask, like, what is new intern? What do you think the person who comes up with all these doping protocols is like? They're like, he lives in the middle of nowhere. He never leaves the house. He doesn't sleep. Mm-hmm. He just keeps shouting. Yeah. 
<laughs> he has a beard. He has to have a beard. He has notebooks everywhere. Yeah, he has a beard. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I can tell you, and, and this is, again, just I, I love to shit on them because they're just terrible, terrible people. The the, the people that, are, that, that operate WADA, they are just the absolute dregs of humanity. They are terrible, terrible people. They're just smarmy, bureaucratic, self-righteous fucking weasels. And I can tell you with a straight face, those assholes have cold called me. They have literally just called my own personal phone line what? to just ask me just to see if I'll tell them the fucking answer. They have no. literally just called me and just like, yeah, we, uh, we're noticing a, a, a radio spike between 268 angstroms and 100 and, you know, and 296 angstroms. Uh, do you know anything about that? Like, I'm just going to fucking tell them. Like, they literally, they have done that. That's outrageous. <laughs> That's mental. That's kind of annoying as well, though. Yeah. That you'd be like, yeah, well, this is what this is. Well, and the funny part is, I mean, do they not know how smart I am? Do they not know that I love to fuck with people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, some of the shit I've told them, like, I have to I have to assume that they're not dumb enough to pursue that. But if they have, dear God. I mean, like, seriously, if they followed some of the things I've said, like, they're out butt-diddling goats trying to find the answer. Because, like, I have told them some dumb shit. I can't believe they called you. That sounds <laughs> so, like, that just... ludicrous is the only word for that yeah 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 dude i did a i i I shouldn't throw her under the bus but fuck her she's a giant twat waffle (laughs) i did a i did a fucking seminar in ireland and when i walked in the gym the director the the guy running the seminar pointed to a woman in the back and she said see her she's a medical doctor and she works for wada that's what he said she is a medical doctor she works for wada Two minutes into the fucking presentation, she raises her little hand and she says, I don't know anything about doping or really medicine at large, but, and then she blathers on a question. Oh my God. Like, can you be any more fucking smarmy, facetious, and deceitful? Yeah. Literally just try and give yourself an advantage in an argument you're going to fucking lose anyway. You have to start with that. Yeah. So needless to say, I just fucking shit on her for an hour and a half and didn't really give much of a good seminar. But I I just, that's, I hate those people. I hate them in a way that's hard to describe. I I think that hate is like a snatch or a deadlift. It's a thing you have to practice a lot to be good at. Mm. I'm fucking good at it. I hate those people. I envision, I sit, I break out in a fucking sweat. I get little beads of sweat on my fucking head. I envision dollops of white hot hate just splashing off their face like 70s porn i fucking hate them Roderick, what's the worst interaction you've had with anti-doping control or with people kind of following up on you trying to stop you doing your job or whatever it is really can't answer that without giving away the ranch um i was working with an athlete in a u.s city at a major U.S. NCAA event, and we were literally looking out the window at the parking at the parking lot where the trash dumpster was, watching the doping control people rooting through the trash bags trying to find the one that came from our room. No, fucking hell, that's insane. Yeah, Yeah. that's so strange to do that. I couldn't imagine doing that. Yeah. Okay, but I have one question. So, needless, needless to say, we put a lot of porn and used rubbers in that trash, and the actual trash they were looking for went elsewhere. Oh, but, yeah. 
Jesus Christ. So I think last question for you, and I think it's um it's it's my own question. What is the you know, something you see you've seen someone else do with their athletes or you've heard about someone doing that made you go, Holy shit, that's a good idea. That something like aside from buying me balco, but something that made you just go, That's fucking that was genius. Oh boy, there again, there's a fucking bunch of them. I you know, I'm pretty smart and pretty good at my job, but I am not, you know, the arbiter of all that is. I've seen I've adopted techniques from others that, yeah, were just fucking clever. Um, fuck, what would be certain ways of administering drugs in very rapid fashions, turning drugs into nasal sprays, turning drugs into suppositories. Oh, um, just, yeah, there's, there's lots of clever things that I've picked up along the way um, that, you know, certain drugs absorb hyper quickly in certain alcohol arrangements you can get a a certain uh, absorption rate with like let's with cialis as an excellent example cialis will dissolve and activate within a given period of time under normal conditions you could pulverize the tablet it'll be a little bit faster but if you pulverize that tablet dissolve it in ethanol and then drink it it's 10 times faster than that so you can literally take your drug test and then still take your drug and get the effect before hitting the actual platform or bicycle or what have you. Um, so there's, there's loads of little things like that, that I've learned that, you know, not everybody can just be on top of everything all the time, but if we could get together and have little cabals, we could trade, uh, <laughs> trade information. And, yeah. Someone, we, we should organize that to seek a strength, anti, anti doping cabal. Well, Unless they have done it already. I don't, I, I don't want to say it. Again. I don't. I don't. Again, I don't want to just start throwing people under the bus. But I won't say that that doesn't exist. Project. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it just so happens there are events the world around Arnold Classics where all the people get together you know, for reasonably up and up reasons. Don't think we don't take time to have uh, you know fucking sushi and talk shop. In the yeah, evenings, yeah, I'd, I'd like to listen to those yeah. conversations. <laughs> uh, Broderick, it's it's always a pleasure. <laughs> Absolutely, thank, yeah. Thank you for giving your time to come back on. I hope people enjoy this uh, little because like a lot of times people don't get a chance to talk to people like you in your position. So I thought it'd be worthwhile giving people an opportunity just to pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, we um we put it on put it up for a few different places, and I think. There is definitely, we put it up, we have like a, a page that just our members are on. And I think there's a lot of people who are very kind of trepidous about even asking questions on that. Yeah. Um, and then they kind of went to, to Gurf individually and asked questions yeah. rather than being seen to ask questions. So I think people really do appreciate it. And like we obviously hugely appreciate it. Um, but most of their questions can never, ever get answered by anybody who has any knowledge in the area. Yeah. Yeah. And... I do understand, you know, a number of layers, including my own, you know, very uh, unique idiosyncratic, you know, nature is that I I don't answer things quite the way people anticipate just because to some degree the materials other than they anticipate. And then to some degree is there is just a distinct level of like, I, I don't give a fuck. I don't like on, on many levels and, and it, it confuses people. So I can understand how I'm an unwieldy beast from an outsider. I, I can get that. 